0: Taking it to a uh, do it yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Emissions Radio Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast on the internet at bzde.org.au, 3cr.org.au, and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzdetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel, and joining me. As always, is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate?
1: Very good, Anthony. How are you today?
0: I'm very well, and uh, today we're talking hydrogen.
1: We are indeed. We're speaking today to Martin Habitzel, the head of strategy from Siemens, about the potential for the hydrogen economy here in Australia, and he joins us in the studio. Hello, Martin. How are you?
2: Hello. Very well. Thanks. Nice to join you.
1: Thanks for for joining us here today. Most of our listeners, Martin, are going to be familiar with Siemens. They're sort of a large multinational company. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about your role there, and also how sort of Siemens stumbled across this little hydrogen opportunity you've you've uh, been investigating
2: yeah, sure. So, as a head of strategy, I look at, at technology trends and uh, market opportunities that we see in the marketplace and how we can bring that uh, technology uh, to the market to bring uh, new business opportunities and other things. And the reason we brought hydrogen uh, into the discussion is because um, we've noticed recently there's been a lot of discussion around um, energy storage in the market, which makes a lot of sense as you get um, deeper renewable energy penetration, a lot of people automatically think of battery storage and more recently, of course, talk about pumped hydro. And our point of view on that is, well, actually there are many different forms of energy storage and really we should be describing the application first and then talking about the technology for that application. And to illustrate that point, we've sort of put it there that if you really want to store enormous amounts of energy for longer amounts of time. You need to be looking at chemical forms, and that's where hydrogen comes to play.
0: We'll get to that, I'm sure, Mm. over over the interview. But I'm Mm. interested in how you guys, within a a private company, how you bring in innovations Mm. and how you choose them, how you you choose Mm. what you're going to work on. Would you have lots of connections with research institutions, universities and then those kinds of situations where then gives you the opportunity to adopt the technologies and Mm. perhaps bring it into a product? How does that
2: work? Yeah, we invest uh, a lot of money in our own uh, R&D. Approximately $6 Australian dollars per annum on uh, R&D. That's uh, across our businesses. So it's an enormous investment because as a technology company, we have to keep investing to stay at the cutting edge. Historically. I guess we would have done a lot of that ourselves and more recently it's well recognised that collaborative development with other research institutions is where the better ideas come from to fruition. And and this particular idea was actually born from the need in Germany where it was recognised that uh, deep renewable penetration was going to cause a potential problem and that we need to look for certain solutions.
0: Absolutely. And I'm I'm interested in a question about patents. And I Mm. I remember I watched this thing on uh, Shenzhen, which documentary referred to them as the Silicon Valley of hardware and the people who worked out of there go look if you think you're getting a patent just so someone else doesn't make this you're in la la land that's not what you get patents for you get patents so that you have a stake in what happens next and you can maybe be part of the standards but really your technology should be moving so fast that even if people copy you you're developing a technology that's better and you're building a brand and which should run out ahead so what's what 's the Siemens' view on on that on patents and intellectual property in general
2: yeah well we we um, take a lot of patents every year, and sometimes through our research, we develop certain innovations and therefore innovations that don 't really necessarily complement our own portfolio, in which case we spend those out um, into into other companies or sell them off. but yes, it is a race, I think you develop technology. And you need to stay ahead because it's that innovation which sets us apart from other providers who are just trotting out volume. So we're really developing innovations which makes their life better.
1: And Martin, we obviously understand the importance of storage given that a lot of renewable energies aren't necessarily dispatchable and the importance of storage there. Can you just talk about hydrogen, how it compares to the overall landscape relative to things like pumped hydro, battery storage and thermal storage? How does it sort of fit into that framework where we're trying to align maybe the the generation of it with the the demand uh, aspects of, of how a power grid might work?
2: Yeah. One way that we uh, look at different forms of storage is, well, how much capacity should it have and how long should it store the energy for? And when we look at um, batteries, we can see lithium-ion batteries can be deployed at grid scale, and there's been a lot of talk about that in Australia. I think it's very reasonable to say that you would store tens of megawatts, maybe even hundreds for hours at a time. And pump hydro uh, is is wonderful if if you've got uh, the facility because there you can really store hundreds of megawatts for very long periods of time. And that's where chemical storage comes into play and hydrogen, that you can store really hundreds, even gigawatts of um, energy for days, weeks, months, even seasonal storage. The storage capacity itself is... Defined by the physical storage tank, a steel tank, and um, so there's not that much of a limitation of how big that might be. Of course, you have to consider, you know, how you know, eh, or just how long you want to store that energy for, and that's where the chemical part comes into play. That really, the the large volume, long periods of time.
0: So that density is really mm-hmm. the key thing. Is there sort of like rule of thumb in saying uh, this many l- megalitres of? Mm-hmm some kind of chemical storage has a lot more capacity or less capacity than X amount of water stored and to be generated in, in a pumped hydro situation. Is there a differential there that you can put your finger on?
2: Yeah, some rules of thumb. I mean, lithium-ion batteries have a very high energy density, so that's um, uh, very attractive. And to get that sort of energy density for hydrogen, you'd have to compress it. So uncompressed hydrogen, um, actually, you need very large volumes Um, To store it. But when you start looking at the cost of storage, um, lithium-ion, of course, is very expensive. If we had to throw some number at it, you might say a million dollars a megawatt. Um, And and hydrogen chemical storage is just a fraction of that. Hydrogen itself isn't necessarily the optimum store. And that's why we often talk about derivative chemicals, which um, uh, can be created from hydrogen, which may provide better opportunities for storage and transport than hydrogen itself.
1: And Martin, so going looking big picture with this sort of stuff at the moment, obviously there's a lot of been a lot of investment in Australia in LNG and, and other gas exports, you know fossil, what we consider fossil fuel, and that is you know itself a form of dispatchable power. How does the potential for hydrogen fit into, as the cost of renewables fall, fit into this world of the, you know substituting for the LNG export market?
2: Yeah, Well, we see the opportunity that, you know, Australia's benefit enormously from that fossil fuel energy export, initially with coal. And now LNG, of course, is ramping up uh, we'll rival uh, Qatar in terms of export volume around 2020. And our proposition would be that following on from the global energy demand for fossil fuels, as, as that starts to transition from lower carbon intense fuels... Australia can maintain its position as a, a global energy superpower in the term of terms of exporting our abundant energy resources, but that they're renewable. And in the past, we would have thought renewable energy—it's not really exportable because you're not going to build high-voltage DC cables over such enormous di- uh, distances. And that's where the chemical uh, comes into play. It actually complements and lets us maintain our role as an energy provider into uh, neighbouring uh, countries for decades to come in a more carbon-constrained uh, world.
0: So that's the other benefit, isn't it? You've talked about the density, but it's also mm-hmm. the fact that you can transport it. I mean, you, you, you know, we pump tiger or anything, at the end of the day, it needs to be connected to a grid in order to be able to take energy and then return it. But this is something where you can you can divorce it from that and then create an export market.
2: Yeah, correct. And there's been some discussion about um, uh, building dedicated liquid hydrogen uh, transport ships. Uh, an alternative proposal is to produce other chemicals, for example, ammonia. Um, ammonia, of course, chemical formula, NH3, is made up with uh, nitrogen, is the carbon-free fuel. And ammonia has that characteristic that um, it's able to be transported in... Existing LPG ships and is actually already commonly traded.
0: Okay, well we'll get to some of those details in mm. a minute. And I mean, I hope that whatever ports they build isn't aren't just right next to the Great Barrier Reef. If you could <laughs> avoid that, that would be nice. Mm. But I just wanted before we moved on, I just mm. wanted to talk about the um, just comparing these some of these chemical fuels. We're going to be going into more depth. In uh, with with biofuels, uh, is it just that they these biofuels tend to use a biological process for a, a key part of their creation, and maybe more these other com, um, chemical fuels don't do that? Is that how you would describe the difference between them?
2: Yeah, that's probably fair. I'm not an expert on on biofuel um, production methods. I'm an electrical engineer, but um, mm. the advantage of, of following the electrical path for generation of such fuels is they become fully controllable. In an um, a electrical environment, um, yeah, you can predict when the renewable energy is going to be available, um, solar and wind typically, and then you can manage the production of those chemicals precisely to match when the, um, the renewable energy sources are available.
1: So Martin, what I want to do to give our listeners sort of a framework to pin this off is because there's reasons why this technology hasn't taken off to date in the hydrogen economy. It's been talked about for a long time and I just want to map out what the process looks like now in terms of you know us splitting water, obviously, which is going to be the one of the main sources of, of hydrogen, and how that you know splitting of water and the the compression and the transportation might end up in a you know a, a factory or something in, in Asia. I want to compare that process, ignoring obviously the the common way that we can get hydrogen at the moment is to simply just crack natural gas. So we're looking at obviously the the more uh, environmentally friendly way, but describe that process now if you could.
2: Yeah. Well, the starting point, of course, is the renewable energy source. And there, um, yeah, of course, Australia is blessed with wonderful solar and wind resources, depending on which part of the country you're talking about. And that's probably the main uh, difference from the past to where we are now is the dramatic reduction in the cost Of renewable energies that lets us explore these alternatives so that's the 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 biggest part the electricity then is fed into an electrolyzer which um, simply breaks the hydrogen out from water uh, with electricity being fed in the unique aspect of the technologies that's required there though is that the electrolyzer needs to be able to respond to the renewable energy going in and in the past um electrolyzer technology has tended to be had a certain steady state operating requirement so you need a, a regular electrical input for it to be um operating whereas newer technology uh, allows that to ramp up and down very quickly in direct response to you know gusts of wind or clouds covering um uh, solar uh, installations and so on so once you have the hydrogen um then uh, then of course you can s- can uh, store it if it's for local use you probably wouldn't do any further treatment apart from compression and direct into transport but to follow your you know your, ex- your export to asia example we would uh, a better way would be then to produce another chemical and I'll use ammonia to illustrate that. Ammonia is easily produced because the Haber-Bosch process has been around for 100 years or more and the nitrogen for the Haber-Bosch process is simply taken from the air from air separation unit making up 78% of the air it's easily obtained. And the ammonia although toxic is it's stable, it will stay in the tank and the handling and, and safety procedures around handling that are known and it is a very heavily traded chemical today already. So the ships for handling it, the ports for exporting and importing are established, and we know how to do that. At the end, so let, let's say we've loaded a ship up with uh, ammonia, we've taken it to um, Japan or Korea. At that end, it can be relatively easily cracked back to get the hydrogen out, and the hydrogen then compressed and used in fuel cells. And there's um, yeah some other research areas and developments going on which make various stages of that um, or bringing certain improvements even now to those stages.
1: And, and do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know the CSIRO had a very exciting mm. breakthrough yes. recently. Martin, do you want to sort of elaborate on that that bit of the conversion and why yes. everyone's so excited about it?
2: Yeah, well, that's exactly one of those developments. Um, the, the CSIRO development, it's um, a tube uh, with a vanadium um, uh, coating on it where you put the ammonia in and you get very pure hydrogen out the other side. And that's important because... To run um, fuel cell vehicles, you need to have very, very high purity hydrogen. So that innovation from CSRO is, um, it really sort of is at the receiving end of what Australia could then export, really makes it, let's say, easier direct hydrogen production into the vehicles and, and other equipment using the hydrogen at the other end.
0: We're speaking to Martin Halbitzl from uh, Siemens. And what was really interesting about that is that just as a, as a side story, I'm, I love this how innovation happens and how everyone just thinks, oh, this thing's got promise. And everyone's going, like, it has got promise, it has got promise. But then what happens is there's an associated technology. Something may need to also happen that is completely unrelated. And that this final step, do you really think it's something that could then just really put a rocket under this market potentially. Just the fact that what that what was holding it back was something that that allowed that to happen at the other end, which is finally happening.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I see that as one a contributor because I think there is actually no one single kind of catalyst which is um, bringing this to life. We could have had this conversation five years ago or, or even more, and there would have been things which would have stopped it just the the, uh, the cost of the renewable energy production would have made it uneconomic and, and stopped the conversation from going further, where we're seeing this tipping point. And based on the trends we see, to do this at very large scales, and I'm talking hundreds of megawatts, it's quite foreseeable that by 2025, we should be building hundreds of megawatt plants, renewable energy, making ammonia, exporting, and having this cracking technology at the other end, deploying it back into into vehicles. So really, we need to start... Building pilots and building expertise and capability now, so that we could take advantage of this.
0: Know any companies
1: who would <laughs> <No laughs> <to> <laughs> so certainly be interested. <laughs> Martin, but my question uh, is is around this: if you could map out this whole process, what are the bits? You said it's sort of on approaching, getting ready to be, you know, commercial. If you had a magic wand and you could tick the bits of it off to get the efficiency up what are the bits that you'd really want to innovate around that process to see this commercialize if you had a, a magic wand to unlock um, the, this this market
2: yeah well if we we look at the market end like where there's a demand for something then it can be fulfilled and the hydrogen um, market for fuel cells is uh, in transport is still relatively in its infancy and in australia it's um we don't really have a market. In Europe, it's becoming established um, and um, and in Japan, uh, Korea, uh, California. So having the market there that's prepared to pay. And uh, really, you could already argue that in using today's renewable energy um, costs um, combined with electrolyzed technology for these niche um, uh, hydrogen for transport markets that we could be competitive today already. To do it at scale and Scale up the cracking device uh, from from CSRO. There's still some cost out potential on renewable energy, still both um, wind and solar uh, cost out on the electrolyser technology. As all of these sort of cost outs come into play, you can really produce a very competitive energy form for transport. And once it's competitive with the with what's normal today, petrol, diesel, fuel, whatever the alternative. It'll start to deplace. So, yeah. I
0: remember one of the nuttiest things I ever heard was this distinction between what engineers think is the uh, the cost of or what what the market will bear with a with a particular fossil fuel, and what economists think the market will bear. And then they think that the economists go that basically the the, the supply of fossil fuels in the world is infinite as far as they're concerned, because as soon as the costs go up then people can just do riskier and riskier things to find the, the marginal sources, which, of course, they have done over the previous, last few decades. But this changes the game, doesn't it? Because as soon as you've got something that is like a fossil fuel but is synthesised and can be done in a completely different process, then it's a substitute good, isn't it? And we've, we're, we're playing a completely different ballgame.
2: Yeah, correct, and it does become substitutable. And you can argue, of course, with new technologies, initially it needs a bit of funding to get underway to, to get development and scale so that it can be demonstrated that this... Uh, that it can substitute the you know the status quo, but um, yeah that's absolutely the case,
1: Martin, so you mentioned there you know you 're talking about the efficiency of the process as well as the low cost of of renewables. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of market um, here because obviously one of the key issues that we're going to have and that we're going to be facing with an increasingly based renewables market is this idea around the fact that we may actually have to curtail some of the energy that we've got. So how does the the notion of the fact that we're going to be curtailing, for example, wind farms in South Australia, how does that fit into... The business model that you're suggesting. Mm.
2: Well, that was actually the original driver for the development of the electrolyzer technology, that in Germany with a deeper renewal penetration, there would be a requirement to, uh, to cur- curtail. Uh, and by 2020, we're talking about like 40 terawatt hours of energy per annum if no storage was implemented uh, into the network. And for that reason, the product was, was developed. So if you're talking a relatively small scale, and yes, uh, in Australia, we will also re- re- meet those um, curtailment challenges at certain points of time, a hot, windy day, we will, we will start to see that. Certainly, we'll probably see it first in um, South Australia. And a small plant would be able to take that excess energy uh, in a behind-the-meter sense and make a, a valuable um, product in the form of hydrogen and use that energy. If the plant was too big, though, it would have the impact of actually making the market price. So you can't um, rely on the curtailment model and cheap um, energy at times of curtailment to say that I'm going to build a business model on the back of that because you would then upsize your installation to the point where you would influence the market price and the demand. It, yeah.
0: it, it reminds me, this is a weird parallel. With yeah. them where, and we're in, it was a couple of decades ago where everyone was complaining, calling, oh, what are we going to do with all these tyres and then everyone figured, like, well, now we can make tennis courts with them. And now they're probably just creating more tires just so they can make the tennis courts. So I guess it could be a similar thing would
1: happen here.
2: Yeah, correct. Well,
1: what What is the magic point there, though, Martin? If we look at, you know, today's catalysts and the, the technology and we, we, you know, even look at the CSI on the scale they're operating with with their um, technology at the moment, what is the magic price point for wholesale energy where it would be worth us commercializing this today?
2: It- Depends on how often you utilize a plant because with renewable energy derived systems it 's actually the capital cost that you have to recover through the utilization and it would you know if you get to let's say between forty and fifty dollars per megawatt hour and with utilizations of about seventy percent, I think then you can start make uh, very valid uh, business cases at reasonable scale now to talk about those figures of course i 'm talking about wholesale prices. And if we talk about very large scale, then really these are not necessarily grid connected systems. So that lets us unlock the renewable energy potential in completely isolated areas, like on the um, like in South Australia, on the peninsulas up in in the Pilbara. It would allow you to access the renewable energy without connecting it to the main grid and build energy export business
1: without relying on on uh, any grid support. So that, that was my next question. Right? Oh, you've picked that straight out of the air. That's well done. My question was basically <laughs> around the idea that you're talking about, you know, you'd like to see some pilot plants up and running. What are the key features? Is, is the key feature more the uh, renewable energy, the, the access to that renewable energy, as, for example, to do with the cattlement in, in South Australia or that good solar resource, or is it also the linkages to those established gas markets, the fact that you've got a lot of that infrastructure already been invested by the LNG people, um, and the fact that we can leverage off the back of that? Yeah. Is how, how valuable is that sunk asset?
2: Yeah, I I guess in the context of where we're exporting um, ammonia in the Pilbara, and the, there's uh, the factory up there producing ammonia, we have that infrastructure which could be used. So, yeah, I I guess I hadn't explored that, but converting that for the purpose of renew, uh, renewable chemical export, I think that would be entirely reusable. But in the short term, to build pilot plants, the main obstacle or challenge that we want to address there is to is to understand how do the parts work together because we know how solar farms work and wind farms, we know how electrolyzer works, we know how haber bush works. But to put these things together in a system and understand what the interrelations of those parts are, the standards that we want to operate them um, with, this is sort of capabilities that we have to build in Australia so that we can build expertise ready to build large-scale plants. And that's really why we need to be talking about Building pilot plants in the current environment, and I'm talking, you know, maybe 10 megawatts, you know, uh, just something of reasonable size that's meaningful and can be exported. Yes, Australia is able to expand as the market conditions become more and more favourable.
1: And Martin, you mentioned there when we've talked a lot about this, you know, huge opportunity, you know, in Asia and, and exporting this and becoming a new LNG platform, a new, new gas export opportunity. But one of the big uh, opportunities at the moment is hydrogen itself is a, probably a billion dollar market you know, as an industrial chemical. And unfortunately, at the moment, we crack that as I said earlier with and emit a lot of CO2. So, what's the potential that we could at least stop doing that? You know, is this the sort of technology? that that might mean we can stop cracking the LNG and actually start producing hydrogen sustainably.
2: Yes, entirely so. And I think that's going to be entirely driven by the market price. One of the main consumers of hydrogen is for the production of ammonia. Sadly, the ammonia price is very low because of the global price of oil and gas. So today it's not economical, but I can entirely foresee mid 20, you know, 2025 and certainly by 2030 that you could just change the front end of that process and be making renewable uh, hydrogen for industrial uh, chemical purposes.
1: But so even ignoring you know, the idea that there could be a price on carbon, I mean, yeah. natural gas is very expensive at the moment. Is it is it not economical at the moment to, mm. to produce hydrogen you no. know, sustainably?
2: The gas might be expensive for us at the moment. But when you look at the global market and the historical prices, it's actually quite Quite low on the global market, and at, because these uh, bulk commodities respond to global commodity prices, that really is the price point, and that doesn't help us. And a, a price of carbon isn't uh, doesn't weigh into that calculation uh, in, in today's terms.
0: So um, I just want to use the last few minutes. We don't have many minutes left just to talk about what happens on the other side. And, and we talked about seasonal storage. I mean, I guess we potentially could see these electrolyzers put in positions on the grid in situations where you may want to use them for seasonal storage. So you're creating um, hydrogen based on you know whatever you can scavenge from the wind that would be curtailed, for example, and then be able to use that perhaps at, at different periods. How would you see this, this, this energy being used? Would it be brought back to electricity you talked about driving a, a transportation type type economy where is it most efficient for this hydrogen to be used on the other on the other end
2: well when you put the hydrogen into a fuel cell it's quite a high efficiency I think eighty percent is not a, an unusual figure and so it 's a great way to get fuel switching in transport because to decarbonize the transport fleet, uh, of course we rely heavily on petroleum fuels that 's a very practical way to do that, and I think that that 's a high value use of the hydrogen to do it that way, but um, you' alluded there toward you know making electricity and of course, through fuel cells you could convert back to electricity and there's also i mean Siemens ourselves are doing a lot of research now on burning um, hydrogen in uh, gas turbines. So gas turbines would comfortably uh, burn 30% hydrogen in the natural gas mix. Um, there's been installations, you know, 60%, 70%. Uh, mm-hmm. We're confident that it would get to 80 90 And the research right. that we're doing is we're trying to push higher and higher on hydrogen burning in turbines. So you could have, you know, in those optimal times when you're making hydrogen, store that in tanks of whatever size you want, and then at other times um, burn it in gas turbines to make electricity. And that uh, then makes a a fully uh, dispatchable electrical uh, source for the grid.
1: And my sort of follow-up question, which leans a bit on what what Anthony just discussed with you there, Martin, is... You're talking about this process, and obviously we're talking about getting it on an industrial scale here. How likely are you able to make this modular so that an industrial chemical producer may be able to have their own little batch to make their own little amount of hydrogen that they need from their solar without having any of the transportation, sort of a a distributed disruption? Does it fit in a shipping container? Does does it? That's what we want to know. (laughs) In
2: in short answer, yes. Today's model, you can buy a 1.25 megawatt unit, and it comes on two skids, one with a stack and one with all the ancillary equipment to minimise site, but it absolutely supports uh, sort of modular and regional deployments. It would conceivably also allow you to build you know, relatively small chemical plants making uh, ammonia for fertiliser production within farming communities rather than the large centralised model that's in play today. So, yeah, it's absolutely uh, modular. The next model we'll put out is will be about 10 megawatts. Uh, 10 megawatts sounds like a lot, um, but when you talk about electrical grids, 100 megawatts becomes exciting for,
1: the, for <laughs> the players. Thank you very much, Martin. We've been speaking to Martin Habitzel, who's the head of strategy at Siemens. Thank you very much. <laughs> we published that on our, on our site when we published the, the podcast.
0: So thanks very much for joining us. been listening to Beyond Zero Show, recording in the studios of 3 Star Melbourne. If you want to listen to this show or any others we've done, you can go to, to bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. i will be Matt Grantham. We'll see you next time.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more bze.org.au